Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 25 down to 32. Um, now Paul moves from the general practice of putting off the old man and putting on the new man um, to a list of six very specific sins to put off by the believer as they reckon the old man dead daily. You reckon the old man, you would reckon them when you accept the Lord, Romans 6, 6, and Romans 6, 11, daily he's to be put off. And so sin nature is ever-present, and it's there to rear its ugly head. We will not be done with sin nature to the day that we give our last breath. Paul in Galatians 5, 16, and 17 says, uh, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you do not do the things you wish. This is warfare. You've got two natures. Your old sin nature and a divine nature, as Peter tells us, God has given to us. Um, you got to put on the whole armor of God that he given, gives us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 um, to be able to do good warfare. Now remember, verse 17 to 32 is the new life of the believer in contrast to the old life. In 17 to 24, um, we saw the walk of the believer as a new man. First, in the negative prohibition, of living like a heathen, 17 through 19, and then the positive side of the new man to live like Christ, verse 20 through 24. Now from 25 to 32, we get the walk of the believer is to reckon dead the old man, and he uses these six sins. There, we could keep the list going, but he gives us six. And so in verse 25, uh, we have the sin of lying, Prohibition the believer is therefore put, putting away lying. This again is a negative, as we said this morning. Paul comes to um, the settled conclusion of this matter. Therefore, it's a concluding word. Everything that I said before, this is some total of it. The list of sins here relate to the preceding unity of the harmony to walk as God has called us to walk worthy in the first verse of chapter 4. Paul exhorted and ordered the believers to put away lying. And the word lying means simply falsehood. The tense is the aorist middle voice. The middle voice always you, the individual doing it, or need to do it, depending on, on the context. Um, and so we have the ability to lie even as believers. The definite breaking point of salvation, we have that ability, but we still have a carnal nature. We have a sin nature. And so Paul would never, would never ask a non-believer to stop lying. He would never tell this to a non-believer. He's talking to Christians, which means that they're doing it, very possibly. Not everybody, but some. And so literally, having put off lying, um, the same tense as verse 22, and the exhortation implies the ability, once again, to do so uh, by the renewing of your mind, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, like taking a shirt off and putting another one on. And so the quote is from Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 16. These are the things you should do. Speak each man truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gate for truth, justice, and peace. He's talking to the people of God that had apostatized from God, that weren't living the way it was. They had God's word, but they weren't honoring God. And so the warning and the, and the calling to repentance in the Old Testament and New Testament is always to believers, not to the non-believer. Non-believer needs to repent from their sins, their loss. And so... Here again, falsehood contradicts any and all truth of God's word. 
where the word is very, very clear and a person would live in such a way that is subject to corruption and twisting it for their own benefit. Falsehood is a contradiction to the truth of Jesus as mentioned in verse 21. It's a contradiction to the new man created according to God in verse 24. In fact, um, the sister epistle, Colossians 3, 9, and 10 says, do not lie to one another. It says, you have put off all the old man with his deeds, and I put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. According to knowledge. What knowledge? The Word of God. That's why we're told to study the Word of God. Now, the emergent church tells you that there's no way we can know any objective truth in the Word of God. My Lord, why did God tell us to study? Why does God hold us accountable to it? It's ridiculous. Men who twist the Word of God, explain it away, rationalize it with human understanding. And so the believers exhorted here based on God's righteousness and holiness, um, not a call to man's ethical or moral code. Now, you may be moral, you may be ethical and not born again, but that doesn't get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is acknowledge you're a sinner and you need forgiveness through Jesus Christ and that he made that, that work of atonement upon the cross by, by grace and by faith. And so don't confuse godliness. Godliness is vertical with God and um, righteousness of morality is on the horizontal plane of man. Now, if I'm godly, then I'll be righteous. I'll live right towards others. But the source is the vertical um, axis. Very, very clear. And so the proclamation of the believer, notice, for the, uh, for the solution, because he not only says the problem is, but the solution. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. This is the flip side, the positive. Believers exhorted that truth is to be the way of life for each believer. Once again, as I said this morning, this is the command in the first century to every believer. And if you look at the condition of the lives of these people who were slaves, that were beaten, killed, used like chattels, the background of the um, sexual rights of the religions, the atrocities that went on, and yet Paul doesn't say, well, but unless you've gone through some of it, he just gives the command straight across. If you're a Christian, this applies to you. And it's been for every generation, regardless of the geographical location, in spite of the race, the culture, or the time. It's straight across. Now, what's the problem today that everybody tries to rationalize the way, well, it doesn't really mean that, or, you know, we need it. No, no, no. The Word of God is very clear. They didn't have much counseling in the first century church. They just obeyed God. And the ex people in leadership expected them to obey God. The solution is in the Word of God, in obedience. And so, um, notice that the proclamation of the believer for solution let each one speak truth with his neighbor. Um, the positive is exhorted again. This is to be for every believer. And the word speak again is to utter with the voice, the tongue, the tense of the imperative present active. Each individual is responsible for this. To be going on consistently through life. The new man, the new life in the spirit of God. He's the one that's directing and guiding me, empowering me to do this. And so the word truth, Elysia, means what is true in any matter under consideration. So whatever the context is, um, there's no article here uh, present, and it's the fourth time that it's used in the epistle. Um, they are in chapter 1, verse 13, uh, 421, 
4.24 and here in 4.25. And so notice the command is that truth is to be in relationship, the context of the prophet is his neighbor. Now people can say like the good Samaritan, well, who's my neighbor? Trying to be self-righteous, okay? Trying to catch Jesus in some kind of trap. The word neighbor simply means a friend or another person. God created Adam and Eve for relationship and community. And that can only be nurtured and strengthened by truth being the only part of God's creation that can communicate vocally truth. Nobody else can. And so with the creation of God and the ability, we have great responsibility and accountability to God. Uh, lies deceive and destroy people, relationships, families, societies. You, you, you're very aware of that. Satan's the father of lies. He um, comes, he's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And uh, he certainly is the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And he is just a liar. And so you find that by the words of Jesus in John 8, 44 and 10, 10. Now notice the declaration of the reason every believer is to speak the truth is for we are members of one another. Um, the reminder again is that we are one body in Christ, members. He has said it in chapter 1, verse 23. 2.16, 4.16. Just like your body <clears throat> has many members, hands, fingers, feet, ears, so on and so forth, but it's under the headship of the head. It all coordinates. It all works together. It's there to supplement and complement one another, and the same with you and I. So the consensus topic of unity has been from the start of chapter 4, to walk worthy of the calling. <clears throat> you can follow it from verse 1 to chapter 4, all the way to chapter 7, even if you continue. Lying cannot be done, or lying can be done, I'm sorry, in various ways, many different ways. Uh, people can exaggerate, they can exhort, I'm extort and distort. They can have half-truths, they can withhold the entire truth. This is done by many, many people to present themselves in a better light than they are. They protect themselves, it's a defense mechanism. And so, you know, you, you don't want to tell the truth, and then all of a sudden, you know, down the road, people find out, and then all of a sudden, people are shocked or relationships get broken. It happens all the time. Um, nowhere is that more important than when you're going to get married. If um, you're going to get married, be honest with one another. Lay your cards on the table. Make sure the person going to marry you is marrying you for who you are, not who he thinks you are. Very, very important, okay? And uh, it, it's, uh, you're much better off without the guy or the girl um, if you're honest. If you're dishonest, then you sow and you reap, and maybe many, many years of misery, and you don't have to really be there. And so lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight, Proverbs 12, 22. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape, Proverbs 19, 5. See, the liar always thinks they get away with it. I mean, you gotta be pretty smart to be a liar, because you gotta remember the other lies you've said, so you don't contradict yourself. It's amazing. You have to work much harder to tell a lie than to tell the truth. Always. And so truth is always the best decision. Honesty is the best policy, as they say. Uh, great modern proverb. Even though it can cost you immediately or for many years or your family or whatever it may be. Um, truth develops trust, confidence, oneness, fellowship, unity, and love. But it's based on truth not on lies. Very important. 
In Psalm 26, the sin of anger comes next. The prohibition of the believer to uh, be angry and do not sin. Uh, once again, the negative first. This does not condemn all anger at all times. He's quoting uh, from Psalm 4.4. Uh, from the Septuagint, it's Psalm 4.5. And the word angry uh, means to provoke or to arouse an anger. Um, the context of habitual righteous anger that could lead us into unrighteous anger and sin if we don't maintain that righteous attitude the way we're supposed to because we still have sin nature. And so the imperative command, the present tense in the middle voice, once again, the believer has the ability to be spirit control. But sometimes we choose not to obey the spirit. Sometimes we purposely walk in the flesh, okay? And that capacity is still there. And so putting off the old man, putting on the new man, being renewed again in the spirit of your mind, as we saw in verse 22 through 24. And notice Paul knew this was um, righteous anger. It, um, uh, this will not lead us to sin if we maintain there, but it'll honor God. We see something evil, and it's just evil, and we, we understand that. But it's not going to cause me to just be out of control, and then it causes me to sin or to say stupid things or do dumb things or take into my own hands what really is in God's hands. And so um, the anger of the Lord in the Old Testament as well as the New is uh, because of his holiness. His holiness demands his wrath, and his wrath demands his holiness. He poured out his wrath on Jesus. There was no sin in him, but he became sin for us. And that's why he was separated from his father for the very first time. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? A verse down, because you are holy. He was literal sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The propitiation for our sins, not us alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Very, very important. Um, Moses, as you know, was angry, and he came down from the mountain. Righteous anger, nothing wrong with that, and God dealt with the people and all that. Um, but um, then later on in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 20, 11 through 13, he struck the rock twice in unrighteous anger, and uh, he couldn't enter the promised land. You who love the Lord hate evil, Psalm 97, 10 says. So this is the righteous anger. We see the evil that goes on, and we understand it, but it's not going to lead us to sin. I understand that. And so, Jesus in righteous anger overthrew the tables and the money changers and the temple. Um, God's wrath came upon the Jews who were hindering the Gentiles from hearing the gospel to be saved in 1 Thessalonians 2.16. That's righteous anger. God deals with that. Now, the proclamation in order for the solution, the believer was not to allow wrath to linger. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. This is now the positive. The exhortation is good counsel always uh, to not go um, from righteous anger to unrighteous anger by seething in one's mind and heart with vicious anger and even revenge or to take into one's own hands. The word wrath there means um, to irritate or to exasperate. Uh, there's the third word, that uh, prohibited thumos as turbulent commotion, boiling agitation, translated wrath in verse 31 of the chapter here. Um, the believer is to resolve all issues by the end of the day. Notice what it says there. So it's not to let the sun go down in his wrath, not to go to bed angry, 
and to lose your joy and peace. Okay? That's your accountability, my accountability. Um, not only with um, your husband or wife, but anybody else. But certainly with husband and wives, a priority. Very, very important. Because you go to bed mad, you wake up madder. Um, you go to bed with no peace and you get no sleep. <laughs> it's just simple. Um, the word is used for parents to not provoke their children, exasperate or frustrate them uh, in chapter 6, verse 4, when we get there. Notice Paul understood this type of anger is wrong. It causes a person to dwell and rehearse incidents, a seethe, a fester, and leading to more and greater sins because you're not bringing your thoughts captive. Bob Dylan has a great line in one of his songs when he did the um, Christian albums, uh, Slow Train Running. He says, we have, the, we have the truth in our hearts, but we still don't believe. We have the truth in our heart, it applies to me, but not to you. You see? That's what we don't believe. It's, it's very cutting. It's, a, it's an incredible album. Very, very scriptural. Now, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Proverbs 29, 11. This type of wrong anger needs to be dealt with, notice. With all obedience to Christ, by the injured party with the Lord first to get right, and then with the culprit. Leaving your gift at the altar, getting right with the person as you've gotten right with God, and then go back and worship God. Overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21 says. And again, the responsibility uh, falls on the innocent party when someone offends them, and the other party, whether they know it or not, it falls on the innocent party to go tell him his fault. Because he could be ignorant, you give him the benefit of the doubt. Matthew 18, all right? And you approach him in humility the way you would want to be confronted, as Galatians tells us, not in a haughty, proud, accusative form, and, um, and get things squared away. And so the reason for the prohibition to the believer, notice, is to not allow Satan to rob him of that peace, nor give place to the devil. And so literally it says, and stop giving place. It was happening. The word gives another imperative, present active, in the negative, to bring about a positive. The thing that is not to be permitted is the giving of place, meaning a portion or space marked off from the surrounding territory, the life in Christ. You don't give that territory back. Joshua 1a says, everywhere your foot shall tread shall be yours. The promises of God, that you understand who you are, what he's done. So do not give Satan a foothold, an open door opportunity to harass, to discourage, to take away your joy and your peace. The devil is diablo, slander, false accuser. You went before God and and God there said, have you considered my servant Job? The word consider is a military term, the most strategic, weakest place where you can defeat him. God brought that testing. 
It wasn't a temptation. It was a testing. And so God gave permission, but God enabled Job. And he was victorious. And so people often ask, what is the purpose of the book of Job? This. God is sufficient for whatever he allows you to go through. Simple. End of the book. <laughs> God is sufficient. And so Paul notices implying that to not re resolve our wrath issues before the day is over is to give an opportunity to the slander, the devil, to cause ourselves to sin by paying more attention to him than to God. So literally, it's my fault. Individually, it's my fault. We're not dealing with who's at fault. It's my fault when I don't bring my thoughts captive. It's my fault when I don't go God to give me the strength and the wisdom. It's my fault when I don't resolve things biblically. We always want to blame everybody. And so we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. We're to submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee. James 4, 7 says both things have to happen. Submit to God and resist the devil. You can't do just one. Because he's going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. Those are believers, not non-believers. Non-believers already belong to him. Think about it. Cain's anger towards Abel led to lying, deception, and what? Murder. Sin doesn't stop. Sin is not static. It's like a choo-choo train. It's all hooked together. Righteous anger about the unethical and immoral world should never cause us to send them. Um, so we should recognize the evil, pray about the evil, see how we can uh, be part of God's solution. And uh, James puts it this way, James 1, 19 through 20. So then, uh, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The world is lost, blinded by Satan, the God of this world. Uh, lest the light of the gospel and the glory of God should, should shine upon them, they be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. You used to be there. I used to be there. You were blind following Satan, so was I. We might have been corrupt. We might have been moral. We might have been ethical. We might have been nice people. We might be in the ugly, mean people, whatever it was. But everybody's following Satan if they're not born again. There's only two families, saints and ain'ts, God and Satan, only two families. And so righteous anger deals with many personal offenses that can only be dealt with by the forgiveness or it will lead to greater sin. So there always must be the acknowledgement, the confession, the asking of forgiveness, and the imparting of forgiveness. It's done. That's what my Bible tells me. But you get the church today and Christian psychology, which is bogus, there's no such thing, and they imitate the world, and you sit there listening to the husband and the wife and going back and you're getting information and trying to figure it out. Listen, my Bible says, stop it. Ask forgiveness, make confession, you give forgiveness, and walk in the Spirit. See you next Sunday. Done. Wow. You know what most people say today? That's unloving. That's uncompassionate. Really? So you're accusing Paul of being uncompassionate when he says just obey? He doesn't give if this happened, if this didn't happen. Straight across, a command. What do you say? 
Who are you going to believe, Paul or the PhDs? The emergent church? The new reformation? The next movement? <laughs> wow. And so we have to be careful. Offenses can come in many different ways. Dishonesties, half-truths, as I said, different things. Offenses could be gossip, defaming your name. Um, you fill in the blanks. That, welcome to life. This even happens to, quote, quote, believers. So all offenses and sins against the believer are resolved through repentance and forgiveness. Otherwise, they become detriment. You become bitter, resentful, and everything else. Now, there's some people that you do all that you can to be right, um, do everything to live in, uh, in peace with everybody, he, like Hebrew says, but there's some people that, that no matter what you do, you've done your part. You've done Matthew 18. You, you ask them forgiveness, you, whatever it is, and if they still don't, then you leave it there. You've done what you're supposed to. You just rest in the Lord and be praying for them. And you're cordial. But that doesn't mean that you have hang out with them. If it hasn't been resolved, Fellowship is when you say you're sorry, I say I, I forgive you, and we're in. It's when both parties agree upon what's biblical. There's been sin, there's confession, there's forgiveness. It's done. But when there isn't an acknowledgement, a confession, there is not true fellowship. Now, I will forgive you, release you, so that I don't live out of fellowship with God. I've done all that I can, but I don't deceive myself thinking that you and I are one if you haven't acknowledged and asked forgiveness. I'm willing to forgive, but, but I release you to the Lord because I don't want that to hinder me like a ball and chain that drags me down. So I have to be careful. Pursue peace with all people. And holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness bringing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. He's talking to Christians, not non believers. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, put away from you with all malice. It's not only going on, but with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4, 31, 32, and Colossians 3, 12 through 40. In the same proportion and amount that God forgave you, you have to forgive someone else. It's not an option. It's a command, an obligation. Wow. Walk in the Spirit, should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Very important, Galatians. Now, the sin of stealing comes next. The prohibition of the believer is not uh, to steal. Letting him uh, who stole Still no longer. And uh, Paul exhorted uh, those who live by stealing prior to being Christian um, to not do this anymore. The word stole means to commit theft, to take something that doesn't belong to you. We get the word kleptomaniac from it. A participle present active, which means timeless. This is what they used to do. The imperative command follows. No more let him steal or literally stop stealing. The imperative command is the present active. This was to be their manner of life now. There should be a very drastic line between your old life and your new life at the point where you repented. Not only to yourself, but those around you. 
It implies there has been a change of the old man to the new man. But yet, he's confronting Christians. So that means Christians can still do all these things and many other things, okay? If they walk in the flesh. And so even Paul asked for Onesimus, the runaway slave, to be forgiven by Philemon, even though he stole from him. And Paul said, hey, lay it to my charge, I'll pay you. Wow. Notice the proclamation for the solution. In 28, they let him labor, working with his hands. What is good? And so once again, the positive. Paul uh, exhorts the believer an example um, to believer and non-believer, the work ethic. This is something that is lost in our nation, in our society. Everybody wants everything for free. Um, that's theft. Uh, that's socialism. That's Marxism. It's headed for communism. Um, that's not um, the society of our Constitution. It's not of the Republic. It's not of American uh, capitalism. Uh, capitalism gets hijacked because there's no ethics and no morals. When you have law, ethics, and morals, capitalism punishes the evil and rewards the good. When those in authority fail to do that, I don't submit to them any longer. They have a responsibility to punish the evil and reward the good. When they reward the evil and punish the good, I'm done with them. Very, very clear. Okay? So study the scripture. Very, very clear. So the quality of work has to be honest and honorable. The word good there, agathos, it means in constitution of nature. Uh, it's, it's intrinsically good. Um, and... Uh, it brings no reproach to Jesus Christ because you are representing him. And the declaration of the reason for command here for the believer to work is that they may have something to give to him who has need. Paul again points the nature of the new man. Uh, he doesn't steal any longer. Now he works with his hands to help others also. Uh, he's not a taker. He's a giver. Uh, Paul is not teaching that giving is to be done compulsory or out of obligation or some kind of um, automatic thing. This is because we are moved by the love of Christ and compassionate. We are benevolent. We know that all that God did for us and we know the kindness of others towards us. And so we become more benevolent, okay? Because we're better stewards of our finances and the decisions we make. And so when we can and God leads us, then we do so. But we don't allow a pastor to tell us who to help. We don't allow an elder to tell us or anybody else. God will show you. You go to the Lord. That's important. Uh, spreading the wealth is not biblical. Uh, sorry, Mr. Obama. Uh, it just isn't. And um, it's a corrupt doctrine that leads to socialism, Marxism, and communism. It's a stealing from the people that work hard. That's what it is. And that's what's been going on in our nation, and it still goes on. And so the great example of Paul, he worked with his own hands. He was a tent maker in Acts 18, Acts 20, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he worked and he took care of himself and those that he brought with him so that he was never chargeable. Whenever through the years that we've gone out to Columbia, to where we would go, we, we never take money from anybody. You, the people here in Pasadena, are so gracious that we are faultless of anybody accusing us. We go and we take care of everything. We go to Mexico for the medical outreaches, everything gets taken care of by Calvary Chapel Pasadena. When we do outreaches, we take only one offering on Sunday. Very general, very nonchalant, 
Boom, that's it. We don't send letters out. We don't get your number. We don't beg you. We don't bug you. We let God take care of all that. And so I thank you for being so gracious that through the past 42 years, you've been a blessing to all the places we've gone to because freely we receive, freely we give. God has been good to us, very, very good. And so the Bible teaches every person is to work, to earn a living. Paul again deals with that in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, that um, if a person doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. Some where they're not working, taking advantage of people. Paul declares also that if anyone doesn't provide for his own house, he's worse than an unbeliever in 1 Timothy 5a. That's a pretty heavy charge. He Paul gives a requirement for the widows also in 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10, that they not be taken into widow for the church to help them out under 60 years of age. Because then in, uh, in 1 Timothy 5, um, 11 through 13, speaks about the younger under 60, They'll start being committed to Christ, and then some sweet talker will come along, and all of a sudden, they abandon Christ, and they're gone. He says, if you're under 60, pray that God bring a, man, I'm a husband to you, get married, have children, take care of your home. So the Bible is very, very clear how we're to handle things. Very, very clear. But again, Paul is very clear about working. Uh, there are many believers who steal from um, their employees, they don't give the eight-hour work. They, they take longer breaks. They're late always or whatever it may be. Have somebody else punch them in. That's wrong. And so um, people can be benevolent to try to help you out, and then some believers take advantage of that, uh, and they drop hints or whatever it is. And so, again, um, you be careful um, because everybody that comes here is not walking in the Spirit. Everybody that comes here is not committed to Christ. Everybody that comes to Pasadena is not going to be in heaven. <laughs> right? So you mark who's walking in the Spirit. Who really loves the Lord. And you only know that by spending time with them. Right? Not just coming in and coming out. So when you get involved in ministry, you build relationships. You find out character. That's important. And so, Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, um, and let... Let us not go weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, believer, non-believer, especially to those who are the household of faith. So the priority is the Christian, then the non-believer, and benevolence. Because if you don't show benevolence at home, you can be good neighbor Sam and help all the neighbors, but if you can't fix your drippy faucet at home, what good does that do? Nothing at all. And so now in 29, we come to the sin of corrupt words, the prohibition of the believers to speak unfit words. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Once again, negative. Paul exhorted the believers to not yield to the old man in inappropriate words. The word corrupt means rotten, putrid, use of a tree that brings forth bad fruit in Matthew 7, 17. Once again, the imperative command in the present tense describing the worst speech that are bad in quality here, unfit for a believer, worthless, obscenities, abusive language, gossip, slander, you can add to the list. So Paul is implying that the believer has a choice on the words that he or she uses, okay? 
I, as your pastor, I had a filthy mouth in the world. When I got born again, bam, gone. Simple. Now, even in the world, I knew how to conduct myself, who I was with. At least there was some sense of understanding that in the society when I grew up. And I grew up in the 60s. Everything started falling apart at the end of the 60s into the 70s. But those who were born in the 60s, they knew right from wrong, even though they were doing wrong. Very, very clear. And so putting off the old man, putting on the new man, the renewing of the mind. This is the ability understood by the believer to choose between right and wrong, to choose our words well. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, um, when, when you go to pray to God, let your words be few. Choose them well, let them be few. For God's in heaven, you're on earth. Very important. And so Paul identifies, notice the vehicle, the mouth, the vehicle of the mouth, but the source is the heart. Okay? Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, fornications, adultery, so on and so forth. In Matthew 15, 19, Paul indicated a person or people as the target of corrupt, worthless words. A wife, husband, children, etc., friends, whoever. The believer is not to allow unholy conversation, neither filthiness or foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks, Ephesians 5, 4 says. We don't talk the way we did in the world. Even as believers, we don't sit there and, and talk about our past, what we did. I don't want to go there. People always ask me, because my brother's movie and everything, I said, what did God save you from? I said, sin. How about you? Well, you're, you're not very interesting. I'm not supposed to. Jesus is. People are carnal. They love juicy steak. They like the blood and guts. Wow. The proclamation notice to the believer for the solution is to speak fitting words. But what is good for necessary edification? Here against the positive. Paul exhorted the believer to yield to the new man's appropriate words. New vocabulary, new heart, new mind. The contrast from corrupt to what is good. Just the opposite. And again, the word good is like the one before, agathos, that which is uh, um, pleasant, excellent, honorable, good in nature. What proceeds out of the mouth is to be good in the sense of beneficial and of value, admirable. That can even be in confronting somebody and reproving somebody or even rebuking somebody because it's fitting it's right to do it at that point where they're at. So it's not just nice little kind little words all the time. It can happen on both ends. Okay? Very important. And so notice Paul exhorted the believer with a purpose in mind. It is other believers. The purpose is the benefit of the person. For necessary edification. The word necessary means the need or duty of believers. Edification simply to build up a person in the body. And he's dealt with the body in 221, 22, 412, 416, so on and so forth. Okay? One member suffers, we all suffer. One member rejoices, we all rejoice. Okay? And so notice the purpose of our words is to promote the spiritual growth of others as the need arises and the opportunity is presented to us. And so a man has joy by the answers of his mouth 
and a word spoken in due season, how good it is, Proverbs 15, 23 says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning and by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learn, Isaiah 50, verse 4. That's why we spend time in the Word every day, in devotions, and prayer. That God would prepare our heart for the day. That He would speak to us as we interact with people. The declaration of the reason, notice that every believer is to speak what is good and edifying is clearly stated that it may impart grace to the hearer. The expression goes beyond the purpose of just mention. It expresses the nature of the words, those sourced in God. Grace implies sweetness, charm, loveliness, characterized by goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. The expression indicates the individual is able to impart this grace to the hearer both ways. It's reciprocal. Having received grace from God and kind, beneficial words, they are able to do the same towards others. Grace contains the idea of kindness bestowed on one who does not deserve it, like you and like I. We almost have to remember that. Freely you have received, freely give, Matthew 10, 8, Jesus says. And so remember Isaiah confessed he was a man of unclean lips and God took the coal from the altar and cleansed his lips, Isaiah 6, 5 through 7. God prepared him, but God did. So now Isaiah is able to impart that to others. So the tongue is one of the most deadly members of our body. Let me give you some scriptures in James, James 1, 26. If anyone among you think he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. James 3, 5, even so, the tongue is a little member that boasts great things. See how great a force the little fire kindles. It's the beast behind the ivory cage. James 3, 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. 3, 8, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly member full of deadly poisons like a serpent. Deadly. More people's lives are destroyed by gossip and slander than probably anything else in the church. And yet people, well, I, I, I don't murder, I don't commit adultery. How many people have you slain though? With that little member behind the ivory cage. Unruly, evil. You know why it's poisonous? It's connected to the heart. <laughs> it's deadly. First Peter 3.10 says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He's talking to Christians, not non-believers. You would never ask a non-believer that. You'd never say that. The words we speak have such destroying effect or building up effect 
to our husband, wife, children, or anybody around us. Proverbs 25, 11 says, the word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Very valuable, very beautiful. For the situation or occasion, listen to Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Obligation. Colossians 3, 16. Always sourced in God's word what we're talking about. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and grace, with grace in your heart to the Lord. We're going to be getting into Proverbs. The Proverbs are all sourced in God's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise in the Lord. Look at verse 30. The sin of grieving the Holy Spirit comes next. The prohibition to the believer is not to hinder the Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Once again, the negative. Paul exhorts the believer to not grieve the Holy Spirit. The word grieve simply means to bring sorrow, pain, to offend. It's used of Peter being grieved when Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? in John 21, 17. It is used to reprove believers sorrowing for, unbe- for their believing um, dead ones like the unbelievers in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. There are many things that bring painful grief to the sorrow to the Holy Spirit, but this context is specific. The unholy, corrupt, and putrid words by believers and the other things he mentioned, 25 to 32. The Holy Spirit is hindered by words in the work of edification and he desires to do through and to other people because we're related. We're in the same family. So notice Paul exhorted the believer by giving evidence of our intimate relationship with the person of God, for this is personal hurt and sorrow to the Spirit of God. Only those having the Holy Spirit are His, Romans 8, 9 says. Only those who are His can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. The non-believer resists the Holy Spirit, Acts 7, 51. But they rebel and grieve his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Isaiah 63.10 So Paul exhorted the believer to not grieve the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a power, not a force. People are grieved. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is God, even as Peter told Sapphira and Ananias in Acts 5. You've lied to God. Jesus spoke of the comforter, the parakaleo, another one of the same kind, but of different number, same source, same mind, same word. He would guide, bring our things to our remembrance in John 14, 15, 16. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth, just as Jesus himself calls himself truth in John 14, 6, 17, 15, 26, 16, 13. The Holy Spirit is found 11 times in the epistle. Read it this week. Find him. <laughs> He's there, all over. Now notice the proclamation of the believer for the solution is that he is God's, by whom you were sealed. Here's the positive. Paul exhorted the believer to remember that God has made them his own. The word seal simply means to set a mark with a seal. This has been stated already in by deposit or a pledge, 
uh, the earnest, the Erebon, in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it could be translated an engagement ring. The same word is found in 2 Corinthians 1, 22. It is used of the seal on the, on the tomb of Christ in Matthew 27, 66, that the Romans put on it. The seal would be put on baggages of cargo to identify the owner. They had a seal. And so he would send uh, his uh, servants down to the dock and every uh, container or whatever it was that had the seal of his master, he would pick up and take home. It was a, si a sign of ownership, okay? Um, he would have right, from, uh, right to it and to claim it. Now notice Paul exhorted the believer to always recognize that they are the property and possession of God by this mark the Holy Spirit. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 19. We are the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Wow. Notice the declaration of the reason every believer is sealed for the day of redemption. Paul exhorted the believer about the future day of great hope. The hope began in the past. The redemption, apolutrosis, has to do with the purchase and liberty of that person. Jesus made the effective payment at the cross, setting sinners free through repentance, salvation by grace through faith. The hope is waiting for the future expectation. This will take place at the rapture of the church. God will remove his church and then pour out his wrath in the tribulation and great tribulation. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain the second coming shall be caught up to the Lord. Um, and so the minute the Lord of the Lord comes tonight, all our loved ones that have died and friends, they're with Jesus. They're going to come down to the clouds. We're going to be raptured, harpassled up, suddenly, violently, and then we'll go to heaven, go through the wedding, and we will come back at the end of the seven years to the second coming to set up the kingdom. That's our hope. The blessed hope is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, and other passages. And so the reference to them in Thessalonians is the dead bodies. We shall be caught up with them. Them who? The cadavers, not the horny toes and lizards. They're instantly present before the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. But their bodies are in the grave. Jesus descends with them, and they're, we're caught up with them for the glorified body. You receive your glorified body at the rapture, not the minute you die. It's very, very clear. And so Paul notices exhorting them about the day of redemption points to the future day when the believer will be completely free in the glorified body. The old man won't exist, sin nature won't exist. Uh, you won't have to worry about corrupt thinking, corrupt words. It, it'll be done. The day when Christ will gather all of us yeah, to heaven, Ephesians 1.10, he speaks about it. Uh, every chapter ends in 1 Thessalonians with the rapture, looking for the Lord. Creation groans, we groan for the coming of the Lord, Romans 8.19-23. Um, grieving the Holy Spirit is like ignoring a pain signal in your body. Uh, your sight starts hurting, it could be appendicitis. If you ignore it, you'll die. Okay? So when we get pain from the Spirit of God and disobedience, we need to correct it. We need to get right and not just ignore it. Very important. There are many other ways we can grieve the Holy Spirit besides with our words, uh, our thoughts, our attitudes, um, unrighteous living, and so on and so forth. Duplicity, all by not depending on the Holy Spirit. 
It says in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, talking to Christians, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to Christians. The preventative to not grieve the Holy Spirit is clear in Scripture by growing, developing, maturing in the Word of God, by being filled with the Spirit of God, by praying to the Lord, by gathering together as a church, by being involved in ministry. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believer in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. That's everybody, not just pastors. And so 31 to 32, you have the sin of malice, the last one he deals with here. The prohibition of the believer is about um, five sins driven by malice. All the previous five, by malice. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice, it says here, the negative. Paul clusters together five sins like a summary statement of what is prohibited in the life of believers, qualified as being all malice, ill will. The list is not intended as an exhaustive list. Of course, all five sins are under the imperative command, put away from you. And so all five are described by the one adjective, all, meaning any and every sort of particular sin name is not to be practiced any longer being part of the old man. The error's passive indicates at a point of their conversion, the old man was put off and must continue to be reckoned dead, put on the new man by renewing the spirit of your mind and mind, as verse 22 and 23 says. And so notice in 31, Paul exhorted the believer to not yield to these five sins. All bitterness means every and any long-standing resentment with, um, which refuses to be reconciled. Many be defiled, as Hebrews 12, 15 says. All wrath means violent outbreaks of passion that is quickly ignited and subsided exasperation. All you have to do is hear a name. There you go. You have to get a thought. Boom, there you go. Hmm. All clamor means to yell loud, quarreling, to assert oneself as one's own rights. We're living in the generation of our rights. Where's our responsibilities? <laughs> wow. All evil speaking is used of speaking blasphemous about God, also of slandering men by an insult and abusive speech here in verse 31. All five sins are under an imperative command put away from you. Paul qualified these five sins that are not to be present in the life conduct of believers as Christians. The phrase all malice means malignity, once again, ill will. This is the old man's nature, his character. Though the old man is ever present, he doesn't have to reign or dominate our lives any longer. The phrase speaks of an attitude of a person, the intent being to injure and to harm an individual. This is not by accident. The amount of ill and harm is never enough with carnality. It's unsatisfied. 
If I hurt you, I'm satisfied right now. But then as I go away, I start thinking about it. That's not enough. I want my pound of flesh. Malice is relentless, uncompassionate. Notice the proclamation to the believer for solution of yielding to bitter malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Wow, that's the positive. The believer is to become benevolent to one another, putting on the new man. The word kind there um, means pleasant, fit for use and gracious being children of God. The believer is to become sympathetic and to have pity towards one another. The word tender-hearted there means compassionate, sympathetic. Okay. Uh, finally, um, Peter says, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brethren. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Straight across, no exceptions. The believers to become forgiving to one another. Notice that. The word forgiving means to put away. To put away. Jesus said to Peter, how long? Seven times 70. 490 times. In other words, every time somebody comes and asks you forgiveness. If they're truly repentant. Now, it's a stretch because we know if somebody keeps doing it, they're not really repentant. So Jesus, forgiveness is not a matter of number. It's a matter of your attitude. A condition of the heart. Very, very important. So notice the declaration of the reason every believer is to be kind, tender heart, forgiving one another is stated. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Paul exhorted the believer to reflect the grace of God over their own lives and then the lives of others. God forgave each person. The number of sins is relevant. The kind of sins are relevant. He had forgiven them completely, right? He bore our sins on the cross. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul exhorted the believer, notice, to be gracious to others as God has been gracious to them. Just means in proportion or in degree. Colossians 3.13. You only know how much you've been forgiven for. The believer in Christ is a debtor to forgive. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, listen very carefully, this is about Christians. For if you forgive men their trespasses, willful disobedience towards you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you trespasses. That's for fellowship. It's not for salvation. That's for fellowship. It's talking to Christians. Wow. The parable of the evil servant, remember, was forgiven thousands and millions, and he took this guy at Odom Pennies in Matthew 18, 23 through 35. He forgot. For I know that in me there is not one good thing, Paul says. Romans 7, 18. Nothing good in me. Unless you believe this, you will always trust yourself. The problem, notice, of sin is not just that certain things are wrong or offensive to God, but sin is destructive first to my own life and then to the life of others. Bitterness destroys. Wrath, anger destroys. Inside, then outside our witness. Clamoring makes a um, big mouth of, out of people. Intimidating, demanding, evil speaking dishonors God and man by abusive and disrespectful language so that people do not 
respect or honor us anymore. Do not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's talking to Christians. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, here's the key. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Wow. The only solution to life, ladies and gentlemen, of sin on whatever level is to go to the Lord Jesus, deal with your heart, and to repent. The fall brought in sin nature. Um, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was greatly great on the earth, and every intent of the thought of the heart was only evil continually. It's never changed. God only knows the depth of the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, above all things. Bad, bad news. So the origin of sin is the heart all sins that come from the heart, fornication, adultery, Jesus said, confirms that in Matthew 15, 18 through 19. So the solution for a sinful heart is the Word of God. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. It's always the heart. Remember the parable of the sword? Four hearts. Four soils. One very hard, the other one very superficial, shallow, the other one being choked down by the cares of the world, and the fourth one is open to God. Obeys God. But that's a choice the individual makes. It has nothing to do with God choosing one or not the other. The heart's a condition. And so that's what we have to watch out for. That's why you stay in the Word, reckoning that old man dead, putting on the new man, obeying the Lord, trusting Him. Father, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for tonight, for your Word. Thank you for every person that's here, and Lord, those that are over the Internet. And we pray that you would continue to teach us, Lord, and to allow us to be more like you, as John the Baptist said, Lord. And that, Father, we would honor you in all things. Protect us. Uh, first from ourselves and from others. And the Lord, you would continue to put your angels around this building and that you would continue to use it as a light to bring people to be saved, Lord, to grow. We love you, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if God has ministered to your heart and you see your need of forgiveness because you recognize that you're lost by the grace of God and that Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins. He alone can forgive you of sins and make you a child of God. Then that's biblical faith. You believe the words of the scripture. That's a work of the spirit of God. But now you have to make a decision. He doesn't make it for you. Do you want to repent of your sins? If you do, this is a simple prayer of repentance as you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. He's going to take every sin you ever committed and bury it in the deepest ocean Cast it as far as east as the west. Thank God he didn't say north and south. Put it behind his back where he can't see it. And put it in a bag and never show it. Wow. You can never get a deal like that here on earth. Only from heaven. 
If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.